From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Bloomberg Audio Studios. Podcasts, radio, news. You're listening to the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. Listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts or watch us live on YouTube. The story again today uh, is NVIDIA stock trading up on the back of that really good earnings we had earlier in the week and obviously had that big surge yesterday, um, but it's up a few percent here today. Um, I'm looking at the stock again, trailing 12 months, up over 240%, up 60%, just year to date, uh, $2.02 trillion. Let's check in with Mandeep Singh. Uh, he's a senior technology analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, uh, and he knows all about this kind of stuff. So Mandeep, you know, we, I think we've broken down the quarter. We know the business is good. We had Gene Munster on in the last hour for, for a couple segments there. He remains uber, uber bullish here, and he says that this AI is just below electricity in terms of how it's going to impact our lives and well above the internet. Man, that's bullish. Do you have any sobering thoughts as it relates to AI and no, NVIDIA I, I, here? I, I concur with him. I, I think this is, uh, you know, something transformational, multi-year. The only thing that as an investor you have to be cognizant of is uh, clearly NVIDIA is compounding, you know, at uh, 50%. And uh, because it's a multi-year trend, they can do that. What is the price you pay for getting in the stock? And what is a multiple that, you know, discounts for the growth going far out beyond, you know, three to four quarters, which I, I think they have great visibility on. And so that's where, you know, there is always a price for, uh, you know, even a high quality stock uh, like NVIDIA where the fundamentals are great, but it, it's not infinity. And, and so that's the, I, I think, part where it, clearly, you know, they're riding the momentum. It's, it's great. I mean, they had a blockbuster earnings yet again, but it's, it, we know it's not forever. And, and uh, the price, th that's why we look at price multiples and, you know, valuation. And, and I think that's the part that uh, market still is figuring out what is the right multiple for a stock like NVIDIA. Mandeep, let's just come back for a second to what NVIDIA's technology actually is. It says here that they dominate the market for graphics chips designed for complex computing tasks needed to power AI applications. So in plain speak, how does somebody like me make use of that? Well, so think of, you know, all the processing that was done in the last 30, 35 years. It was using a CPU central processing unit and uh, CPU works in a certain way in terms of the instructions you pass through the processor, the way it does the processing and the, uh, the way results are spit out. 
That was the same even with data centers, even though the CPU in data centers is a lot more powerful. With NVIDIA, because they focused on graphics and gaming related processing, that's a different type of chip altogether. And now they've been able to bring that to AI computation, which is all matrix based. So we're talking about, you know, vectors and matrix multiplication and, uh, you know, billions of dimensions uh, in terms of the data that you're dealing with. And that's a very different operation than what CPU is designed to handle. That's why they've had such a great head start because they've been doing this for, you know, 25 plus years in terms of that gaming uh, processor that is being used for AI. And, and that's why I, I think others are finding it hard to catch up. But at the end of the day, it's still a hardware company that makes chips. So it's not a recurring revenue. And that's something to be mindful of that others are trying to build the capabilities that they have. Uh, All right, Mandeep, let's switch gears a little bit. Uh, we've, I think, beaten that one to death, uh, NVIDIA, but certainly it's certainly worth talking about. But we've actually had another piece of news that really caught my attention, Reddit. Uh, is looking to go public. They filed their IPO. Can you tell us, for those of us that don't use Reddit exclusively, tell us kind of what Reddit is, kind of what their business model is, and kind of how you think this might be received by the market? Yeah, so it's an online network. Uh, I mean, I would lump it with the social media network companies, even though it's more community-based and interest-based. And uh, look, they've got 73 million daily active users, Think of, you know, all the large language models, what are they trained on? They're trained on user-generated content. And, and in Reddit's case, it's all text content. The parallel that I have on the video side is YouTube has a lot of user-generated video content. TikTok has a lot of user-generated video content. Reddit is your text repository for user-generated okay. content. And that's what large language models are using to train these models uh, so that they can generate, you know, right kind of text because they have so much context from these Reddit posts. I mean, we're talking about 1 billion posts, uh, you know, that Reddit generates in a year. So clearly Reddit has the scale. They have created a niche within this large social network community where uh, Meta dominates with 3 billion daily active users. Uh, but Reddit has 73 million, and these are pretty engaged users. I mean, the business model isn't fleshed out because even though it's ads-driven, we're talking about a billion-dollar run rate. And now they're opening another line, data licensing, that all these large language model companies are going to pay for. So that's ah. going to be probably a mid to high single-digit uh, revenue contributor this year. I think that's the part that's going to accelerate because you need to retrain these models every few months and and reddit is the best data that you can train on so reddit's really like a forum for a lot of communities to gather you know there are like these different threads mm -hmm. on there and people get like really hyped on different ideas obviously the meme stock rally really just originated so much from these different reddit communities can you just explain mandeep like where the value is going to come in generating um you know, investor, you know, value from some of these different threads. I guess like I'm just having a hard time imagining where that value proposition comes from. Yeah, so these threads are all user interaction and that's quite powerful. How do you train the machines to behave like users? You train it on actual user data. And this is, you know, communities coming together who share similar interests. And that's what you use to train the machines. 
the one problem uh, I have found with Reddit's business model is advertisers are leery of putting their ads on a platform where there is hate or, you know, uh, other kind of stuff because uh, they, they are brand conscious, you know, they don't want to show their ads next to something that uh, is hate or something like that. And that's where they haven't had a lot of traction. I mean, it, it sounds to be very similar to Twitter. Twitter is a great platform for engagement but they haven't been able to monetize it because of all these aspects. So uh, brand safety is huge that Reddit needs to solve for if they want to scale on the ad side. But as I said before, you know, on the data licensing side, this is uh, the data set that every foundational large language model company wants to train their models on because uh, this is all user-generated content. It sounds like, I mean, you know, from an advertising perspective, it's, you know, it's Meta, it's, you know, it's Google, it's Amazon, now maybe even, uh, you know, s some others. But I mean, this is too small to be a player in the advertising space. So, so in order for me to, to buy this IPO, I have to buy off that it's also a, I guess, a AI play as well, don't I? It, it absolutely is. And look, ads can be fixed. I mean, I, I compare it to Pinterest. Yep. So Pinterest has got 23 million daily active users in the U.S., Reddit has got 37 million daily active users in the U.S. So it actually has higher okay. daily active users. Question, and, and Pinterest is four times the size of Reddit in terms of revenue run rate. So Pinterest is close to 4 billion, Reddit is a billion. So in terms of runway, clearly, you know, Reddit is under monetizing the engagement. But the reason for that is advertisers still don't feel like spending, you know, Five ten billion dollars on the platform because of brand safety issues and and all the type of uh, posts or discussions they have on Reddit. So they need to clean up that part, assure the advertisers that you know their uh, advertising dollars are well spent, offer measurement, etc. But this is fixable. I mean, we've seen Meta uh, do so much in terms of ad measurement and ad targeting, and look at what they have done this year. So clearly, there is a long runway for Reddit. And the data licensing part has a lot of upside because of all the generative AI interests. All right, Mandeep, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, Mandeep Singh, he's a senior technology analyst, Bloomberg Intelligence, uh, joining us via Zoom there. So again, Reddit, it's interesting. It's a, it's an IPO. We like to see more of those hitting the market. It's a good sign for the market. So Definitely. Uh, the, the IPO buyers will be happy. And it's another kind of social media play. But as Mandeep was saying, it's got this AI angle to it as well. I feel like every time we have a topic here on the radio where we're talking about AI, I have to ask, like, how is this like somebody like me going to use these tools? Because right. like, you know, we talk about the impact and sometimes it's hard to imagine something that's really going to impact your life more than the internet yeah. or a cell phone. Yeah. And like, is this really accessible to the mass market? So yeah, exactly. So, but I mean, you'd listen to every company in the S&P 500 saying AI is going to impact our business. You're going to go up to a drive through and it's going to be a different experience, a better experience, thanks to the technology. And so we'll see, you know, but that's clearly what we're, a lot of the bulls are banking on. You're listening to the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. You know, I don't know what to do with this market, Molly. Maybe I just, is it just all NVIDIA all the time? All Seems tech, all like it. All tech. AI or nothing. All tech, yeah, exactly. AI <laughs> or nothing. But uh, let's talk about this market in a more broad uh, sense. Laureen Gilbert can help us do that. She's the CEO of Wealthwise Financial, joining us via Zoom from, I believe, Houston, Texas. So on behalf of Houston, Texas, I'll call yes. out 
WTI crude oil is off about 2% today, $77. I think the people in Houston care about that stuff. I think they do. Yeah, yeah just a little bit. Laureen, thanks so much for joining us here. What do you Thank make you. of what we've experienced over the past few days as and a few weeks as it relates to AI and NVIDIA and what it means for the tech space and the market overall? I haven't seen anything like this in a long time. Right. Well, we are in the age of AI, which is similar to the age of the internet when it came to be, although this is going to transform really every sector and every business. And so it is a huge story. It is the catalyst of the market and will continue to be. And the good news from NVIDIA yesterday really was that it spread across the semiconductor space um, as all of these different companies are looking to get some market share. And, and so while we still don't know who the winner is right now, certainly NVIDIA has been, uh, but we like the whole space of semiconductors and also what it's going to do to other sectors as well. So that is the catalyst. How are you feeling right now about earnings in general, Lorene? And um, I mean, obviously, there's a lot of positives to take from these AI stocks, but what about elsewhere? Yeah, so with over 80% of the S&P having reported, we're having a good earnings season. We've clearly come out of an earnings recession with year-over-year growth over 5%. So we're, we're in pretty good space there with earnings and we do see opportunities in other areas of the market communication services is one that we like quite a bit uh, as well as healthcare is another sector that we like just with inflation continuing to come down and so the story is that the backdrop is there with inflation coming down with the fed that's going to make a move sometime this year we're still holding on to the idea of may maybe the first rate cut even though probability has come down to 21 percent now for a may rate cut we still think you know it's sooner than later with a rate cut which is going to help then many items especially even housing and home builders for the second half of the year so uh, we do see a lot of optimism in areas of the market lorraine i just see uh that you like preferred stock and we don't talk about preferred stock preferred stock market opportunities with preferred stock why in some markets it's a, a real uh, advantageous vehicle how do you think about preferred stock yeah the way that we're thinking about right now is the yield is good and um, it helps us mitigate duration risk on fixed income. And so it's a nice play between the stock and the bond and looking at preferred stock as a way to capture some yield and mitigate some risk. Well, how are you thinking about the broader fixed income space right now? You know, you just said that your bet is sooner rather than later for a Fed rate cut, which um, seems like is not what a lot of Fed officials are saying these days. Right, and there's always what is being said and what will ultimately be done. But, uh, you know, so so having some duration is good, but not extending too far. We're, we're, you know, just right pretty close to the benchmark as far as duration is concerned on fixed income. We do like fixed income and we do think that fixed income is going to be a good part of a portfolio this year as we don't see necessarily a straight line in the equity markets. And so having some fixed income there will be good to moderate risk on the equity side. We're also looking at the earnings yield on stocks right now is not that attractive, you know, compared to 10 year treasury. So, you know, looking at that idea. So once again, a blended portfolio we think is going to be a good story this year. And of course, just depending on somebody's risk tolerance, where will that blend be? But not being all equity or not all fixed income, but having a blend we think is going to be uh, provide some some decent returns this year. 
Hey, Lorraine, what do you hear from your clients about their interest in, I guess, alternatives, whether it's private equity, private credit, maybe hedge funds? What's the interest level there and, and kind of how do you steer them? Yeah, we like alternative investments. We hold alternative investments in the spaces, you know, you've mentioned a number of them. Uh, and there's liquid alternatives and there's non-liquid alternatives. And that's really the conversation to have with investors is, you know, how much liquidity do you need? And certainly what the public markets offer us is liquidity, and that's important. And then there are ways to drive more alpha, more excess returns versus uh, what might be expected, and that those are some of those non-liquid alternatives. So I think a combination of both is important. And once again, looking at investors to see what kind of liquidity they actually need. So it sounds like tech's a good place to be right now. Um, you mentioned you also like some uh, communications uh, sector stocks. Where else are you looking in terms of the industry breakdown? Well, like I was mentioning in healthcare, we like biotech uh, as well, just because that is an area that as inflation wanes, tends to be positive for that area of the market. Those also tend to be oftentimes smaller companies. And while we're see, still seeing a dominance of the large cap space, we think there will be a reversal to that trend this year and we'll see benefits from smaller cap companies as rates start to come down. So that's another area that we like. All right, Lorene, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate getting a few minutes of your time. And Lorene Gilbert, CEO of Wealthwise Financial, uh, joining us via Zoom from Houston, Texas. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. You're listening to the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business App. Listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts or watch us live on YouTube. More news coming out of Washington as it relates to Ukraine and Russia. The U.S. today unveils its biggest sanctions package on Russia since the war began. A drone maker and a payment system uh, company are among targets of penalties. Secretary Yellen says Russia's economy is showing, quote, signs of weakness. Let's break it down with Dan Flatley, national security reporter for Bloomberg News, joins us via Zoom from Washington, D.C. Uh, Dan, what's in this sanctions package? Well, uh, there's a lot of stuff in it. Um, we're talking about, uh, you know, all told about 600 or so targets. Um, but a lot of them aren't really household names. So you looking at primarily Russian companies with or individuals with no ties to the U.S. financial system. Um, but they are getting shipments and uh, they're getting some goods in from third countries uh, that are helping kind of keep the war machine going. So the idea here is basically to kind of ratchet up some pressure on the Russian economy, kind of uh, clamp down on some of the places where things are uh, still getting through, and then really kind of, uh, you know, look forward to potentially some other measures that may be taken, uh, you know, in the next few months. 
Dan, tell us how effective, if at all, the sanctions up to date have been, because, uh, you know, the IMF in your story said that Russia's economy is actually on track to grow almost 3% this year, and it's really seems to be holding up pretty well, by and large. Yeah, there's no question that, you know, as far as the strategic goal of getting Putin to, you know, give up the invasion and, and withdraw from Ukraine, that obviously hasn't happened, and we're now two years into this conflict. Um, there have been some effects, uh, you know, on the Russian economy. Growth is, is a little bit slower, or at least it was initially. Now, as you mentioned, the IMF projects that it will be close to 2.6 or three, you know, up to 3% this year. Um, so it's it's slowing uh, the economy, uh, you know, not as much as, as the U.S. would have hoped, but it has forced Putin to sort of turn his economy into a wartime economy to basically... Uh, kind of turn his entire manufacturing sector over to producing stuff for the war. And the hope is, uh, obviously, over the next 10 years or so, that the Russian economy will be smaller over time. Of course, that doesn't really help Ukraine now. And that's where we get into some of the funding battles that are happening here in Congress. Hey, Dan, uh, we had... Uh... Um, oh, thank you very much. Hey, Dan, we had Deputy <laughs> U.S. Treasury Secretary Wally uh, Adeyamo on Bloomberg Surveillance Television this morning, and Jonathan Farrow asked him about India, because India... India has been one of those countries that has kind of been a little bit loose with its um, relationship with Russia. What's How does the administration think about India and its place kind of in geopolitics and how it may be interacting with Russia, maybe against uh, some of these sanctions? Yeah, it's a huge, huge problem. Uh, some of our colleagues from Bloomberg Economics have done a great analysis on sort of the 10 lessons from the Russia-Ukraine war uh, that was out uh, yesterday. And, you know, they look at sort of the rise of uh, this this block of countries that are really rivaling the U.S. and its allies, not necessarily in terms of size of, of economic weight or power in terms of global GDP, but certainly as an alternative to um, the U.S.-led kind of financial system. And that's India and that's China. And when it comes to Russia, those countries are really keeping Russia propped up to a large extent. India is buying Russian oil. Ch oil. China is buying Russian oil. China is sending technology and other goods onto Russia. Uh, Russia is also getting weapons from Iran and North Korea and other places. So there's kind of a whole rival faction that um, has has uh, cropped up that is going to be very hard to counteract, especially when you're talking about India, which is which is an ally of the U.S. in so many other ways. Yeah, Dan, you know, you and I had talked about this um, a bit uh, time ago last year, the idea of um, export controls. Is that what we're alluding to here? Like basically when, yeah. um, you know, some of these countries that, you know, like India maybe in this case that aren't being directly sanctioned by the U.S. but can still, you know, kind of work with Russia behind the scenes and help get around these sanctions in maybe a bit more of an indirect way. Yeah, I mean, it's a really it's, it's a huge issue right now, just from a policy perspective. If you think about sanctions and the history of sanctions, and the way sanctions work, they really leverage the financial system, which, you know, it works. Um, it's technology. So you can see payments moving through the system. It's very easy for banks to uh, know that they, you know, if they violate sanctions, they're going to get hit with big fines. Export controls is a totally different game because you're talking about uh, boxes and, and microchips and things that are moving through um, sometimes a more informal economy, and it's harder to track that sort of thing. And I've talked to folks in the last week or so that say, you know, once that stuff hits Hong Kong, once it hits Turkey, or once it hits some of these third countries, we lose all visibility of it. We don't really know where it's going. So how do you stop that from happening? Um, it's just not as well developed as sanctions. 
So, Dan, we had Admiral Stavridis on earlier today, the former NATO Supreme Commander, a four-star admiral, retired U.S. Navy. He was saying, boy, they need the weapons now, the Ukrainians now. Um, and, you know, it's really at a critical time here. It, you get a feeling within D.C. that there's a belief that, that this is a critical time, or is this simply a political game at this point? You know, it's a good question. It's, it's hard to say exactly. I think that that there are uh, some folks on Capitol Hill uh, who do feel the urgency. Uh, Senator Schumer, the Senate Majority Leader, is in Kiev uh, today as we speak, um, visiting with Ukrainian leadership. Um, Republicans have gone as well in the past. Mitch McConnell has certainly been pushing for Ukraine aid. The Senate did pass a package uh, that will provide Ukraine with weapons and other financial support. But it's stuck in the House. And, and that's where it gets into a much uh, trickier political situation because you have the former president, Donald Trump, really pushing against this kind of uh, uh, package. You have some isolationists in the Republican Party who say, you know, why are we spending all this money in Europe when we should be spending it on the southern border? Um, there's a lot of uh, things that are happening there in an election year that makes it very hard for something that ordinarily would would get you know a majority support and and really probably would if you put it on the floor of the house uh, makes it much harder to to get done so that's that's a real uh, sticking point right now when we're talking about sanctions though Dan is that something that would be subject to the same kind of approval process as Ukraine aid would be as like going through Congress in that same kind of way well I think this is one of the thing one of the reasons why sanctions uh, the use of sanctions is up like a thousand percent over the last two decades or, or two and a half decades is because you don't have to spend a ton of money to to wield them. You don't necessarily need approval from Congress every time you want to levy some sanctions. Um, you do if you want to spend, you know, 50, 60, 70 billion dollars, if you want to reinvigorate the defense industrial base, if you want to do all these things that actually matter on the battlefield, um, you need Congress, you need the purse strings. And, and uh, you know, so that's a much harder sell. But sanctions, um, you know, I won't say they're easier to wield necessarily, but they are more efficient in the sense that the administration can do it on, on its own without having to go to Congress for authorization. All right, Dan, thanks so much uh, for joining us. Really appreciate getting your uh, thoughts and analysis there. Dan Flatley, a national security reporter for Bloomberg News, joining us via Zoom uh, from Washington, D.C. You're listening to the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Our C-suite conversation today, Kevin Butler joins us. He's the CEO of Exelon. EXC is a ticker to put into your uh, Bloomberg terminal here, a utility company. But I want you to tell us, just start off, Calvin. thanks so much for joining us, but... Tell us about your company, what you guys are doing, and then we'll get into kind of the meat of it. Absolutely, and good morning, and uh, thank you for having me. So Exelon is the largest transmission and distribution utility in the country. We have the uh, privilege and responsibility to serve approximately 10.5 million customers across some of the most uh, diverse and largest cities in the United States through our utilities, Commonwealth Edison in Chicago, Baltimore Gas and Electric, and uh, of course Baltimore, Pico out of Philadelphia, uh, Pepco Holdings, which is sitting in our nation's capital, yep. D.C., uh, Delmarva Power and Light in Wilmington, Delaware, and Atlantic City Electric. So when you look at that scale and size, Exelon is positioned well to lead this energy transformation, and that's who we are and how we show up for our customers. 
So you guys just had earnings uh, a couple of days ago, right? Yes. Uh, yeah. So tell us about uh, the latest quarter, some of the highlights, and um, what you're looking forward to in the year or so to come. No, thank you for asking. As, as Wednesday was a good day, and um, I say that because we beat our fourth quarter expectations and we exceeded expectations uh, for the 2023. And I was just so proud of the team that we were able to deliver on our commitments that we made in 2023, despite all the challenges. And when I say challenges, when you look at in Pennsylvania, had one of the warmest winters it had in the last mm. 50 mm. years. Yeah. And being a distribution company, the gas company that we do there, we continue, we overcame those headwinds and still met the number. And in addition to that, despite the challenges in our regulatory environment, because of our scale, we were continue to able to shift capital around our platform to invest in the things that are most important to our customers. So it was a good day. All right, my analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence that covers your stock, she writes in, she says, ask him about Illinois. <laughs> so talk about some regulatory headwinds. Yeah. It seems like Illinois is in the news, and not always for the right reasons. But anyway, talk yeah. about doing business in Illinois. You know, ComEd is the largest utility in Illinois, okay. having the pr privilege of serving Chicago. And your analyst is right on. Illinois is uh, a difficult jurisdiction for us right now. We had a ruling on December 14th, and that ruling set, I think, their efforts to decarbonize and to move forward on transportation electrification that they were on. But we are committed to working with all of our stakeholders, including the commission, to get to where we have a shared vision to move Illinois forward. But it was. It was a December 14th, I remember it well. It was a tough day. But what you've seen now is we've reduced about $1.4 billion in capital in Illinois. But more importantly, so, uh, because yeah, of this decision? Because of that decision. And wow. what, what really hurts is that the citizens of Illinois, their transition to a clean energy stack is going to slow down. Mm -hmm. And we had to lay off 900 contractors. Yep. Mm. That's direct contractors. And impacted by that was roughly 2,000 indirect jobs. Now, that's just us. So you can imagine the other utilities, the other electric utilities and gas utilities had to do the exact same thing. But... We have, we have a path forward, and we continue to work with the uh, commission to right-size this. And obviously, you, you guys are looking to do, you know, switch over to clean energy and other markets as well. So how does Illinois maybe give you a bit of a blueprint for how to approach these other markets? Well, I, I would tell you that the same day, although there was a bad outcome in Illinois, we had a solid outcome in Maryland, exact okay. same day. So it just goes to show you, when you have a shared vision of how to get there, we don't expect the commissions to give us everything we're asking for. Mm -hmm. But if we have a shared vision and a mutual, understand the mutual benefits, you can do it. And I always say in my golf parlance, you know, Maryland, you know, we hit it, it was a par. It wasn't a party, you right. know, we a, and we're working on that. So it, it is a shared vision across. And each jurisdiction is different because you can imagine in Illinois, they're saying we're going all electric sooner rather than later. Maryland doing the exact same thing. Pennsylvania? Hey, we like our gas. Mm -hmm. You know, we're saying gas is going to be part of that portfolio in Pennsylvania. And it's up to us to understand what those jurisdictions want and determine how to get there with those mutual benefits. So that's how I was going to ask you. How do we, to the extent that we move this economy to a more greener fashion, including on in the energy grid, yeah. who drives the bus? Is it you guys saying this is how we're going to invest our capital in our plant? Or is it more the municipality saying we want to go this way? We want to stay gas. We want to go green or or is it kind of a, I guess, partnership, I it's, guess? It's, it has to be a partnership. Right. So, you know, by us not owning generation, what I can tell you is 
we are brought to the table more often than not now because they don't feel I have a uh, oh, vested okay. interest. By me not owning, no longer owning nuclear, wind, or solar, my job is to deliver it to you. So once they understand that and really get it, I'm now a trusted partner. Now having said that, what I can tell them is that here's the cost to achieve what you're trying to achieve. Give you an example. In Maryland, we had a jurisdiction that wanted to go all electric. And we said, look, I'm a electric and gas. I'm going to benefit. I can do that for you sooner mm -hmm. rather than later. But this is what it's going to cost the average customer in your city if you do that. And when you put those costs in front of them, they're like, okay, let's slow it down a little bit. Let's be more pragmatic about it. And let's do a balanced approach. And that's what we're finding. Well, that's what I was going to come to you next about is that I'm sure a lot of people would, you know, if given the choice, would probably say, yeah, cleaner energy, let's do it. But then what does it cost? And so are you saying then that this is like, is it markedly more expensive than gas? And is that just because it's a new technology, it's going to take some time? Or even once it's further developed, this is still a more expensive energy alternative? It will be more, it, you know, it will be more costly in the short run. Why? Because the infrastructure to handle wind, solar, and increased renewables, you have to build this infrastructure to do that. So that substation that's in your, right around the corner from your home, it's not equipped to handle that amount of load if you were to convert directly to electricity sooner rather than later. So you have to build up that infrastructure. But I do believe technology is going to catch up and balance out the cost. And my responsibility as a CEO is to ensure that this transition is done equitably. Those of us who can afford it, you know, they're not going to miss a beat. But what about those communities that are struggling to pay their bill today? When you start going down this path quicker, they're going to be the ones most impacted. How do you, your company, Exelon, mm -hmm. do you grow via acquisition? And if so, how do you think about acquisition-related growth? Yeah, so when you think of Exelon, Exelon was formed in 2000 with the combination of Commonwealth Edison out of uh, Chicago okay. and Pico out of Philadelphia. Okay. So Exelon formed via acquisition. In 2012, we, we uh, bought Constellation Energy, which was Baltimore Gas and Electric. In 2016, we bought Pepco Holdings, yep. which was Pepco DC, Delmarva, and Atlantic City. So we're a conglomeration. I think the industry will continue to move that way because scale matters when you go to cost and affordability. For us at this point, that is not a priority because we're investing over $35 billion over the next few years. That has to be our priority right now. How do you and think about, I'm sorry, just, I'm just looking yeah, at the FA, FA function, my financial analysis function. Um, free cash flow, is it all go to the dividend? And or do you say, um, yeah, I see you have a 4% dividend yield, a little bit higher than a 4% dividend yield. How do you balance the, the dividend versus maybe using cash for acquisitions? Yeah, we have a rule of thumb that we try to target 60% dividend payout okay. with earnings. So we target that, and we look at issuing equity as well to our capital investment. Our equity plan is 40% of our capital investment. That's what we rolled out on our earnings call. So we're going to issue about $1.2 billion of equity over our LRP to fund What's that the addition. A long-range plan. Yeah, I'm okay, sorry. Okay. Yes. So 2024 through 2027, we're going to invest $35 billion, and that's about $3.7 million in new capital, and we're going to fund that 40% with new equity. So we balance that, and 
and also the earnings, you know, our debt ratio is, one, is the lowest in the industry, our CFO to debt. So those are all the things we look to to fund opportunities. Yeah, it looks like you guys just had a bond offering um, earlier this week, um, almost $2 billion. So yes, that helps. It does. Uh, but that's mostly refinancing yes, debt, it looks like. It, it was. And it was, it was the best spreads we've received in the past 15 years. So people understand the value proposition of Exelon. Okay. Real quick, 30 seconds. You're based in Chicago, right? Yes. How's Chicago today? How's Chicago today? Chicago is, it's, it's a city that's struggling like many urban cities, but I always tell people it's one of the greatest cities yeah. from June to October <laughs> when it gets cold. Yeah. Um, but it is. It's a wonderful city, and it's vibrant. And that's what and I tell you. You know, when we get to serve some of the best cities in the nation, and we are community partner. Right. So. All right, Calvin, thank you so much for joining thank us. You. Really appreciate it. Calvin Butler, he's the CEO of Exelon. Uh, EXC is a ticker to put into your Bloomberg uh, terminal there. Uh, joining us here in a Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. They recently uh, reported some earnings. They uh, were in the market, as Molly was saying, with a bond offering this week. So uh, busy times for the good folks at Exelon, based in Chicago, one of my all-time favorites. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. You're listening to the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Let's get the... Ethan Ranganathan, because she is the media analyst, and there's a lot going on in, in the media space. Warner Brothers Discoveries is one of those companies that was put together by Warner Brothers merger with Discovery Communications. Everybody felt like, okay, now this company's got some scale, some size, and they could make that transition into streaming. Well, their latest results came out, and it's just kind of confirming, not so fast. The stock's down 11% today down 25% year-to-date, down 46% on a trailing 12-month basis. Really, really tough out there for the traditional media companies. Geetha Ranganathan joins us. She's a media analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Geetha, what you take away, or what does the market not like about what they heard uh, from their conference call? Yeah, really, really tough, Paul. I mean, it's it's lower earnings and, uh, you know, earnings pressure that's kind of dominating the whole narrative for Warner Brothers Discovery. So, you know, their EBITDA for 2023 came in way below guidance. They had guided to somewhere between 10 and a half to $11 billion in EBITDA. It actually came in at 10.2 billion. And I think what's worse and what kind of really spooked investors was there was absolutely no guidance whatsoever oh. for 2024. A kind of, you know, suggesting, I mean, consensus had 2024 estimates at about 10 and a half billion. I think it's going to be way below 10 billion. And if you just kind of look at the commentary for the TV networks business, remember more than 50% of their revenue comes from their TV networks business, you know, networks like TNT, TBS. 
um, again, advertising is really in the doldrums. So, you know, nothing to, to really cheer uh, about right now. How much of this, Geeta, is really just coming out of those Hollywood strikes last year? Just, you know, it's going to take a little bit of time or there's really more of a longer term issue at play here? The Hollywood strikes, Molly, definitely had a huge impact and they weighed that those strikes definitely weighed on EBITDA. So the, so the numbers that we kind of talked about, the 10.2 billion versus the 11 billion, a lot of that was from the Hollywood strikes. The flip side was the Hollywood strikes did have a positive effect on free cash flow. So, you know, the, the, the free cash flow numbers that this company threw out were, were obviously huge. But again, that's going to reverse once content production restarts. But I think, you know, it's not just the content pipeline, right? We're looking at a business model that is very, very challenged right now because of cord cutting. Uh, you know, you look at a pay TV ecosystem that has lost about 30% of its base, and that is really having some huge ramifications for this company. So, uh, you know, we spoke about 50% of its revenue coming from the TV networks, 90% of its EBITDA comes from that TV networks business. So we're seeing a steady 10, 15% decline every year because of cord cutting, because of ratings pressures, and that's not going to go away. All right, Keith, um, we're looking, waiting for President Biden is about to speak in Washington, D.C., so we're gonna be, we may have to cut away from that. Um, so, um, Keith, let's see, we have President Biden walking up to the lectern, I believe. So uh, we'll have to see how this plays out. Down in Washington, D.C., some comments uh, from the president. So we'll have to wait and see how that plays out. Uh, Keith, real quick, is a merger between Warner Brothers Discovery and Paramount something that could happen, should happen? It seems like two relatively weak companies, two relatively levered balance sheets. Yeah, Paul, I mean, th there is a lot of strategic rationale, uh, you know, and, and Warner Brothers Discovery has been really good at extracting synergies. They've, they got out almost four and a half, five billion dollars from just that combination of Warner and Discovery. So they obviously could do that again with Paramount. The thing is, I just don't think the market has any appetite for more debt. I mean, we have Warner Brothers with $45 billion in debt. We have Paramount with about 16 billion. I, I don't think investors will like it. And let's look at, I mean, the subscriber numbers here. It looks like those actually came in above analyst estimates. But I mean, is that, I feel like that's normally something that would drive a bit more optimism here. But like you said, everything else across the board is just like really just so negative. Yeah, I mean, streaming subscribers, yes, that used to be a metric that investors used to kind of get excited about. Not anymore. We're really looking more for profitability. And at the end of the day, yeah, they could add, you know, a million, two million, even three million subscribers, but it's really not going to move the needle. I mean, yes, you have them at about 97 million subscribers for their max platform, but it's still a very far cry from Netflix, which has 260 million, from Amazon Prime, which again has maybe about 200 million, from Disney, which has 150 million. So they will always kind of be that tier two player um, and so then it's going to come down to, okay, what is their place going to be in this new streaming world? And we're still kind of uncertain about that. Hey, Keith, Tom Keen asked me a good question this morning. He noted, reminded me that John Malone is a big, big owner of Warner Brothers Discovery, and he doesn't have a whole lot of patience. It, it, what do you think his intentions are with Warner Brothers Discovery? Is David Zaslav, the CEO, is his job in jeopardy? Do you expect John Malone to exert some pressure on this company to enhance shareholder value? How do you think that dynamic might play out? Yeah, I think 2024, Paul, is definitely going to be a, a difficult year for, for media all across the board. That said, they do have certain things in place. So they do have this new uh, skinny sports app that they're working with both Disney and Fox. That's going to come out in the fall. So, you know, that that's, that's a positive. I, I really don't know what kind of uh, impact it's going to have on earnings just yet, but they are definitely trying to hedge their hedge their bets. 
But going into 2025, I mean, they're still talking about, you know, streaming profitability and things like that. Uh, again, I'm not sure whether it's enough to kind of offset the linear TV pressures. So I, I'm, I'm not sure what kind of pressure John Malone is going to be exerting on them, but I don't necessarily see anything major happening, at least in 2024, from both an M&A perspective or from a financial perspective. Right now, it's all about, you know, organic opportunities for WBD. So it's... It, there's really no major catalyst as far as I can see. Yeah, well, my good friend, uh, Laura Martin, she's a media analyst over at Needham & Company. She's uh, one of the top analysts out there, a lot of experience. She's keeping her hold on this company. Uh, she says, you know, 2024 is an investment year, not a free cash flow growth year. So she's waiting for revenue growth to come, uh, which might be might be next year. So she's staying on the sidelines, at least. You know, when I see uh, an earnings report like this, Geetha, um, when you see like something that's like, Free cash flow was like so overwhelmingly positive and everything else not so great. I feel like this is like case in point of like why bondholders and shareholders care about different things. So is there going to is this maybe something where if you're a, um, a debt holder of Warner Bros. Discovery today, you're just like praise be they're going to pray down. They're going to pay down debt. This is a great deleveraging story or like you can't even take that kind of an angle. It is a good deleveraging story, and they've done a great job. I mean, they paid down more than $5 billion uh, in debt, Molly, through 2023. But then, you know, they had some pretty ambitious leverage targets. So we ended 2023 at 3.9x. 3, you know, they, their goal was to get to a two and a half to three times leverage ratio by the end of 2024. They're obviously not going to get there. I think, you know, the way that bondholders are going to look at this is obviously the EBITDA guidance or the lack of guidance kind of speaks volumes at this point. You know, the, the earnings pressure is just tremendous right now for this company. I think once we get to below three times a leverage ratio, I think that's when the, the stock will really kind of start to work both on the equity side as well as on the, on the credit side. All right, Geetha, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Geetha Ranganathan, uh, she covers all the media uh, industry, all the companies there uh, for Bloomberg Intelligence, really leads our effort there, and we appreciate getting a few minutes of her time. Just a real time of transition in the media space here as the industry tries to you know, transition from what was a traditional media model where you bundled everything up in a cable package and you paid your 80 or 100 bucks a month and everybody made money all throughout the ecosystem. That was a very, very good business for shareholders and for bondholders. Now this transition to streaming, the economics are uncertain at best. And investors are saying, I'm gonna wait on the sidelines before I get back. I'll, uh, maybe, you know, not to toot my own horn, but I did just get cable for the first time in my life. Really? In my new apartment. It's part of our maintenance fees that okay. we get a deal with RCN. So maybe I'll be helping them in some wow, way. Because you're a, a what? Spectrum, cable, no, cord cutter. No, just like, what's oh, your, millennial. Your yeah, that's the label. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So you're <laughs> wow. I mean, a millennial getting into the pay TV ecosystem. Look at that. That is a, it's a story in and of itself. <laughs> this is the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast, available on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live each weekday, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also watch us live every weekday on YouTube and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, 
top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.